0: I invite you to take a copy of the scripture, hopefully you have one with you, and turn to the book of Galatians with me this morning. If you do not have a copy of the Bible, of the scriptures, uh, I have mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again. There's a great app that you can have for your phone if you like <coughs> that, <coughs> excuse me that technical kind of stuff called the YouVersion Bible app. Great way to engage God's Word digitally, Uh, but we would love to give you an actual hard copy of the scripture if you don't have one, and so if you don't have one, feel free to get up at any point in time here and grab one in the back uh, by the doors. Uh, We would love to give that to you so that you have a copy of God's Word because it's foundational for all of our living. So, we are going to begin today a sermon series on the book of Galatians. Now, the book of Galatians uh, in Christian history is a very important book. For people like Martin Luther and a lot of the reformers, this was a pivotal book that established uh, a very technical phrase, but a very common phrase in the church, justification by faith. Meaning this, that people are justified, not by anything that they do, but by God's grace through faith alone, trusting in Christ's death and resurrection. And so Galatians, for centuries now, has been a pivotal book within just kind of the Western um, practice of the Christian faith. Um, But but Galatians is really a powerful book, even beyond the theme of justification by faith. In the book of Galatians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going to address some important things, like, who is Jesus? Um, What is the gospel? How how does life look differently when someone trusts Jesus' death and resurrection? Because it's not just, like, a mental belief, it's actual, like, life that results because of what you believe. Um, This all leads to making someone right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and then the community gathering together as one body, and the work of the Spirit. And so there's all these themes that find themselves throughout the book of Galatians. And as we study over the next several weeks, we're going to look at several of these themes as they come up in our text. Um, Galatians is a work that the Apostle Paul writes to address a very specific concern, though. He, he is writing, and, and he comes in pretty strongly in the first few verses because there is another gospel that is being shared in some of the churches that he was a part of helping plant. And what he wants to do is he wants to, to, to write to these people whom he loves dearly, these people in Galatia, and he wants to say, don't believe another gospel. Stay rooted, stay firm, stay true to what I have called you to in the revelation of Jesus Christ through the word of God. And so Paul is, is not just like writing a theological treatise. S- sometimes we think about uh, Paul's letters like this, like, oh, he's making a great doctrinal statement. Most of the time when Paul is writing, he is making doctrinal or he's making truth claims about who God is, but he's not just doing that. He's actually writing to correct certain things that are going on in the churches that are receiving this letter. Um, This is true of Galatians. This is true of Corinthians. This is true of Philippians. And every letter is a little bit different. Sometimes he comes in, he's like, I'm so thankful for you, and I just want you to know how much your joy and my joy in Christ Jesus overflows. That's like Philippians. Uh, In Thessalonians, he he has another like opening statement that says, oh, I'm so thankful for you and all this kind of stuff. In Galatians, man, he says grace and peace to you, and he is hitting it hard because he's wanting to address a serious foundational issue right at the get-go because it's a matter of life and death. And so we are gonna spend um, this time studying Galatians And believing and trusting this, that the gospel of Jesus changes both our eternal destiny, which it does, but it also changes our present living. In other words, the gospel matters for the future, but it also matters for today. It matters for how we walk out God's teaching and God's word in our lives. For his glory. So, uh, I know you just uh, sat down a few minutes ago, but would you stand with me and let's read today from Galatians chapter 1. And for today, we are going to, um, we're going to read the first 10 verses of Galatians 1. Read this with me, please. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you, and they want to change the good news about the Messiah. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be upon him. As we've said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to win the favor of people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. God, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand the truths that are contained in these incredible words written by Paul through the working of your Spirit in him. God, would you uh, direct and and anoint my mouth and my heart to teach what is right and what is true as we wrestle with these very foundational matters of faith. We pray, God, that you would be glorified and honored in all that we say and we do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So, um, a little bit of background because when we start studying um, a book, it's really helpful to know, like, who's it written by, who's it written to, when is it written, where is it written. Um, this is helpful to know the context in which the author is writing. Um, you probably picked this up uh, in the very first verse. We'll start with the who, okay? Um, sometimes I write this kind of stuff in my Bible, too, because it's good to remember quickly and not have to like look it all up in commentaries and stuff or to read the text completely and then have to write it all down. Um, we find out who is writing in verse 1. Paul. Paul. It's pretty simple. He, he, he lists himself as the author of this work. And this is Paul, the apostle. Um, Paul is the Roman name of... Saul, And we're, we're introduced to Saul in the, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, I believe it is, is where he first pops up. So when you read Saul in those things, you just know that that's the Hebrew name, Shaul, and Paul is the Greek name. Paul was a Jew, all right? He was a Jew, but he was born in a place called, called Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is a city in the southern part of Asia Minor. Um, and and he, so he grows up, and he has this Jewish background, but he also has Roman citizenship. Something which will prove to be very important for him in his ministry and in his life, for how he can go through and and have certain um, conversations and have certain rights as a Roman citizen. So Paul, though he's he's a Roman citizen, thoroughly understands um, what's going on in the world outside of of Judea and Samaria. And Jerusalem, uh, but, but he is thoroughly trained in the rabbinic teachings of the Pharisees. One place in uh, Philippians, I believe it is, he describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were people who studied the Word of God. They were people who taught the people, hey, here's what this means, here's how you walk this out. Generally speaking, they were pretty well loved by the people. They, they, they were their pastors, their spiritual fathers within the Jewish faith. Paul is a Pharisee, a Pharisee. He's thoroughly trained in the rabbinic teachings, and he studied under a noted teacher whose name is Gamaliel. Just a little bit of information about Paul. In Acts chapter 8, I was wrong, it's not Acts chapter 9 where he first appears, it's Acts chapter 8, we find Saul, um, Jewish name of the same guy, who is found agreeing with the death of a guy whose name is Stephen. Now, Stephen was one of the early church leaders of the Christian, uh, or, or the people of the way, they called them The, the, the people who were, uh, at that time, early on in the church, they were largely Jewish, but they were followers of Jesus because they believed Jesus to be their Messiah. Not only was he the Messiah for the Jewish people, he's also the Messiah for the whole world. Um, but Paul... Um, was agreeing with the stoning of Stephen because um, he thought that his ancestral religion, Judaism, was under attack. He, he was trying to protect what he thought was right. In Acts chapter 9, it records, for example, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus. And in Acts chapter 9, we find that Saul sought to persecute Jewish followers of Jesus. He, he did this because he was passionate for the faith of his fathers, which Galatians 2 talks about. And, and he believed that this new sect within the Jewish faith was a threat to how they were to properly follow and obey God and his word. Galatians 2, which we'll study later, provides more background to who Paul is, but there's just kind of a snippet of information, so that you understand a little bit about who this guy is. Um, So that's who. Now, when and where, um, when, when was this book written, and where was it written to? Um, This is a very complicated question in some respects. Um, There is a whole host of scholarship of two primarily different theories about when it's written and where it's written, and they're interrelated, Um, So there is what is known as the northern Galatian view. There is known what is the southern Galatian view. This will not be on a test for you later. Um, But there's a whole bunch of stuff there. I don't want to get you down into the weeds too much. If you would like to study that more in detail, I can can certainly give you plenty of information to wrestle with it. Um, But here's the main points between the two. When it says, to the churches of Galatia, this is a word that at the time of the first century could mean two things. It could mean ethnic Galatians, which would be consistent with what is called the northern Galatian view, because that's where the people um, called the Gauls lived, okay, G-A-U-L-S. And they were known as ethnic Galatians. However, it can also be understood as a Roman province, and if you understand it as a Roman province, you find this province in the southern part of Galatia. So it's like, do you go with the ethnic group that's up in the northern part of Galatia, named Galatians, or Gauls, or do you go with the southern part, which is the Roman province? You can understand why this gets a little tricky. Um, I tend to to uh, give preference to the southern Galatian view, and and here is why. I'll make this simple. Um, If if you take the northern Galatian view, this typically assumes a later date of authorship, specifically after the Jerusalem Council, which is noted in Acts chapter 15, and um, it believes that this is directed towards an area filled with ethnic Galatians or ethnic Gauls, The problem is this, while Paul passed through this area on his second missionary journey, we don't have any evidence of any churches founded by him in this area. That's not to say that the gospel doesn't go there, it's just we don't have evidence of that. On the other hand, the southern Galatian view, which understands Galatia to refer to a Roman province, um, this takes an earlier date of authorship before, typically before the Jerusalem council. And, and that, that chapter is really important in Acts 15 because Paul is going to address some of the same issues that are found in Acts chapter 15 in the book of Galatians. But in Galatians, he doesn't refer to the council to say, hey, this is what the church fathers in Jerusalem said about this. He doesn't mention that. He, he says, on word of the Lord, here's what I'm telling you, and he gives a couple of other examples. But he doesn't cite Acts 15 as, hey, here's a, here a ruling handed down by the pastors, if you will, of the Jerusalem church. So, according to the Southern Galatian view, probably written in 48 to 49 of the Common Era, likely before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, because of these issues. And, and if it's written after... Um, one would assume Paul to share this message with his hearers. That, that would be, if it was written after um, what happens in Acts 15, you would assume Paul would engage that conversation in this letter because of what is in the letter, especially chapter 2. So, uh, I take a southern Galatian view, uh, which puts it about 48-49 CE uh, before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and there's a whole host of other reasons we could talk about, but I, want, I don't want to get you too much down in the weeds. So, who is Paul writing to? Paul is writing to, of course, the Galatians, but he's writing to believers. Now, he's going to address heresy, but he's not writing to address the people who are teaching a different gospel. He's writing to followers of Jesus who are tempted to turn from the true gospel to what they're being told is another gospel if that makes sense. He's writing to believers, and these churches um, likely had a mixture of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. The further on you go in that first century, the more Gentile followers of Jesus you have. And especially as you go out from Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and you go to the other most parts of the world, there's Jewish communities all over Asia Minor. But um, you have this message, which is not just for the Jewish people, it's actually for all. Uh, because Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. And that includes both the people of Israel and the rest of the world. So, a couple of photos here to help ground you in where we are at So, if you look kind of in the center on the bottom, you'll see a star. That is a place called Antioch on the Arontes. This is likely the place where Paul is writing from as he's addressing these churches. The churches he is addressing, if you go up and you go to the left... And you go around that bay over there, and you kind of go down, you can see Tarsus. He's addressing churches who are all in through here. Now, it's interesting. I show you this map because you can see, hopefully, a little bit of, there, there's like mountains and elevation, and so Paul doesn't like just travel by land. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he travels by sea. In Paul's first missionary journey, here's where he goes. So if you look up there, you can see the number four on the top right part of your screen. You can see the number nine as well. That's Antioch, same place that was in the last slide. Jerusalem's way down on the bottom right. But if you follow the purple lines, that will take you across all the cities that Paul went to on his first missionary journey. Southern Galatia. So, so this letter, I believe, is Southern Galatian because he's writing to these people whom he already had a relationship with. We also know that he had a relationship with them and had planted these churches. So he goes from Antioch in his first missionary journey to Salamis, to Paphos, which are on the island of Cyprus. Then he goes to Perga. He goes to Pisidian Antioch. He goes to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derbe. And then he basically retraces his steps goes again by boat, all the way over back to Antioch. And it's sometime after this journey that Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. Um, Now, why is Paul addressing this? I've I've talked about this a little bit. Paul has several themes in this letter that we're going to examine, but the forefront issue is this. He has heard that these believers are turning to a different gospel. And Paul has a great concern for these believers who are experiencing pressure to add things to the gospel of Jesus, that change its very essence. Now, Paul's going to talk about things like justification by faith, the role of the Torah, how Jews and Gentiles are to interact based upon their shared faith in the Messiah. He's going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to talk about how to live for Jesus. But at the core of it, they're addressing, uh, Paul's addressing, um, this idea that has come into these believers' lives that you need something other than Jesus to be made right before God. In other words, it's Jesus plus this equals life with God. And he says, no, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. There is nothing else that can make us right with God other than trusting in Christ's death and his resurrection to pay for our sins. That, that's the kind of the... Put put your stakes in the ground statement Paul is going to make, and he's going to use several arguments to underscore that. Um, So, Paul, here's a statue of Paul in Rome. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. We start off by seeing this, of course, that Paul is an apostle. And we're going to talk about apostleship a little bit more in next week's teaching. But I want you to notice something that he begins with. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised him from the dead. When Paul begins to describe who he is, whom I think his hearers already know who he is, he does not place his authority in some sort of council, or in some sort of person, he says, I'm an apostle, I'm a sent one of God, and my authority comes not from something um, within my teaching, or my traditions, or my ordination, or my study. I mean, Paul was an incredibly astute person of the scripture, but he does not go to any degrees or any experience in his life to cite why his words matter. He begins by saying, these matter because these are the words of God. My authority does not come from men. It comes from the Lord Jesus, who is raised from the dead by God the Father. His authority as an apostle comes from this experience he had on the road to a place called Damascus, when he's going to breathe threats and murder upon the Jewish people who are followers of Jesus, he goes there, Jesus meets him in an incredibly powerful way and completely changes his life. He grounds everything in, this is what God has told me to do. This is God's word for me and for you. And, and he functions with these people as a pastor. He functions as a teacher because he not only has planted these churches, he loves these people. He loves them as though they were his own brothers and sisters because in the Messiah Jesus they are. So this authority that he has comes from the risen Messiah Jesus. Uh, I, I love here, and you'll see this a couple times in Galatians, when it says, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Uh, we'll, we'll see in a couple chapters, I think it's chapter 4, um, where um, language regarding the Father comes back into play. We'll talk about that more then. We'll also see in Galatians how language of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit comes into play. In many ways, this is a very Trinitarian book. Um, so, he grounds his authority not in his experience, but in his the work of Christ in his life. Because it's Jesus who brings people into relationship with God the Father. Uh, He goes on from this introduction, and he says, grace to you and peace, in verse three, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace and peace is a very customary greeting of Paul. You can go to most of his letters, and you'll usually find grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is an incredible statement. Grace is a customary Roman or Greek greeting that Paul I think makes his own one one scholar writes it this way: grace um, describes God's outreaching redeeming and sustaining concern for a fallen humanity all right Grace grace involves this God's outreaching his redeeming his concern for people who are lost in their transgressions and sins but but it's also something that Um, expresses a dynamic and generous output of God's power to achieve what is best for his creation. In other words, grace is something that God has bestowed upon people, not because you've earned it, not because I've earned it, but because he sees how fallen humanity is, and he reaches out to redeem, and it comes by God's grace, his redemptive initiative. This thing that we don't deserve or earn but is a generous giving of who God is because he wants what's best, namely a relationship of his people with himself. So there's grace, grace, but peace. Peace is not a customary Roman greeting. It's actually a customary Jewish greeting. You would say shalom. Can you say shalom? Shalom. There's your Hebrew word for peace. Um, uh, The word Jerusalem, salem, comes from uh, is part of the root of shalom, and so city of peace. Uh, peace is in that name Jerusalem there, um, and it's a customary greeting, and it doesn't just mean an absence of conflict. Sometimes we say, "I just want a moment of peace," which means I want nothing going on, right? Anyone who has young children in the house, uh, you're like, "Oh, just give me like 30 seconds of peace, no quiet, or n- no noise, no commotion, no nothing like that." That's not what Paul means by peace. He doesn't mean an absence of conflict or complete like. Um, stillness. When he talks about peace, he means all that makes for well-being, for wholeness, and for prosperity, material and spiritual, social more than individual. In In other words, that which makes for productively harmonious relationships. All right, so peace is not the absence of something. It's actually God's goodness and well-being and wholeness and prosperity in how we walk and live. It it means having a right relationship with your family. It means experiencing um, good community within the body of Christ. It, It means walking through your day Having this idea that I'm not just here for myself; I'm here to be with people, and I'm here to encourage and upbuild, and to have good relationships. It's a positive term for Paul. It's it's not a neutral term. It's a very positive term. And so he begins this letter by saying, "Hey, grace and peace to you." And then um, here's the other idea of peace that I think Paul understands because peace. While it comes from, like, a a Jewish idea, the word shalom, peace was known within the Roman world. Um, This really big structure right here is an altar that was dedicated in 9 BC, so nine years before the common era. Um, This altar was dedicated to a god, lowercase g, uh, and the god, lowercase g, his name, or her name was Pax. Can you say Pax? Pax, P-A-X. Pax is the Latin word for peace. Now, um, this is dedicated to the goddess of peace, and it's built in honor of a guy who was an emperor named Augustus. And this emperor, Augustus, was known to be the emperor who brought peace. And he brought peace through military strength. He brought peace by saying, if you don't do what I want you to do, you will be squashed like a bug. All right? That's what they knew of peace. If there was a commotion or an uprising, stamp it down. And so they built an altar to him. uh, And and it's dedicated to the goddess of peace because the Romans placed a great value on peace. But when Paul says grace and peace, he's not talking about this kind of peace. He's talking about a very different kind of peace. And there's only one way that you experience peace, according to Paul. Um, Dr. Todd Boland writes this. He says, under the Mosaic law, sacrifice was required on a regular basis to deal with sin. The Romans also sacrificed regularly in order to appease their gods. You can actually see it in the center there. You'd walk up there, and a couple times a year, they would go ahead and they would sacrifice uh, um, a, uh, a bull or goat on there as an offering to pox. Um, Dr. Bowen writes, the Romans also sacrificed regularly in order to appease their gods. Paul's greeting to the churches of Galatia proclaimed that Christ's sacrifice of himself is what brings true peace with God. In other words, really, he says, there's no other way to experience peace other than through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because that's the only sacrifice that could ever actually make peace restore relationship with God. Um, Now he says, grace and peace to you, Um, let me find it here, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Um, This is an incredibly important phrase that Paul begins by saying, this present evil age. And, And when he talks about present evil age, he uses the word rescue. Now the word rescue here Uh, who gave himself our sins, to rescue us from this present evil age. When he talks about rescue, it means this. It means to deliver someone from peril or confining circumstance. So you can imagine that you're tied up and you're in a car or something like that. You're just trying to get out. You're, You're stuck. You have nowhere to go. You cannot move. To experience rescue is to let those cords be cut and have the ability to move your arms and to be able to get out of the car and to move and to live as a free human being, all right? That's maybe one way to understand what Christ has done, except instead of being stuck in a car with cords wrapped around you, we're stuck in sin. We're stuck in this rebellion towards God, and it's this that Jesus came to rescue us from— He gave himself for our sins. In other words, he became the offering of sin unto God to rescue us from the sins that we have committed and the resulting condemnation from those sins. He came to deliver us because we were in peril and in a confining circumstance. This word rescue is a word that's used to describe God's deliverance from Pharaoh in Acts chapter 7, when that story's being retold, it's the same word. God's people, we looked at this with Passover a few weeks ago, God's people are stuck, and they cry out to God. God hears them, and He rescues them, because they couldn't rescue themselves, and they're stuck in Egypt. It, it's a word that's used uh, to describe God's work in Paul's life, Uh, from the Jewish and Gentile people so that he could faithfully proclaim the Messiah Jesus in Acts 26, 17. And so it has this idea of, of being delivered from something that's confining or peril. Rescue is what Jesus did by giving himself for our sins. And for Paul, the present evil age was not just a theory. It was reality for him. When he says present evil age, people knew what he was talking about. They knew the struggle and the sin in the world. These are believers again. He's writing to them. And um, for example, one of the places that this letter is going to, if you hold to the Southern Galatian theory like I do, um, it's going to a place called Pisidian Antioch. You'll see in the center of this photo there's a big temple. It's the remains of a temple. And, and this temple was the temple of Augustus at Pisidian Antioch. And, and it combined two of the most prominent forms of of the pagan cult in the first century Mediterranean world. it combined paganism and emperor worship. So paganism is all that is just really bad stuff. And emperor worship is is making a god out of someone who is a mere man. He happens to be the emperor. He happens to be in charge of the whole Roman world. But they deify him. They make him a god. And that's what this temple is for. And actually, in Pisidian Antioch, uh, this was built sometime after the second uh, year in the BC, um, and this temple was dedicated to Augustus, who was regarded as the founder of the city Antioch, and, and it's constructed in front of a two-story semicircular portico, and it's next to a large colonnaded courtyard, and, and this temple became the focal point of the city. In in fact, as a contemporary pagan temple in a city that received this epistle, it is symbolic of the present evil world mentioned by Paul, Dr. Boland writes. So, when you you would come into Pisidian Antioch, the dominating feature of this entire city, you would walk in and go, that's the most important thing because it's ginormous. Anywhere you were in this city, you could look up and you go, yep, we know what that is. Uh, Years ago, when I was back in college, we got to go... um, visit um, Athens, Greece, and and other places in Greece, and Athens is just a beautiful city, but when you're there, you're like, oh, there's the Parthenon, oh, there's the Acropolis, and all these places are are places of pagan temple worship, Um, but they're built on high places. They're built so that they can be seen because this is the most important thing to the people who live there, who are not followers of Jesus. You know, this is what drives everything you do taking a sacrifice, going to worship, exalting the emperor, engaging in pagan practices. These people were deeply religious, they just weren't very spiritual in a relationship with God. And this is what the early church people were taken out of, largely. Of course, you have people who, who grew up in Judaism, and that's a whole different thing, but, but for pagans who come to faith in Jesus, they're taken from a life that is saturated with, just go offer this to that God, and go offer this to that God. Make your worship uh, be something that was culturally acceptable and culturally relevant. But the thing is, the culture of the time was incredibly pagan and anti-God in so many ways. And so Paul's hearers would be able to walk into a town and know what that town worshipped. The emperor, the pagan practices, things that are anti-God. And Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from this right here, from this different way of living, this different way of giving honor and authority to things that are not God. He rescued us from that confiding circumstance so that we would not serve God's made by human hands, but so we might serve the one, the true, the living God who gave Himself. For our sins. Now, present evil age, um, this deliverance and this rescue, for these people to experience rescue does not mean that they leave this city. All right? They're still living in Pisidian Antioch. They're still living in Lystra, they're still living in Perga, they're still living in Paphos, they're still living in Iconium and Derbe, they're living in all these places. But their life is not dominated by this now. Their life is dominated by the risen Messiah and the gospel of God. deliverance or rescue from the present evil age did not require a physical removal from the pagan world. Rather, it meant that in the midst of paganism, in the midst of government worship, they were called to worship one God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sent his Son, Jesus, to be The atoning sacrifice for our sin. In other words, the power of the gospel is not just an agreement to certain beliefs. For Paul, it's a radically different way of living because, as he says in chapter 6, you're a new creation. So, present evil age, this is what you've been delivered from. What have you been delivered into? A new creation. And a new creation is something for Paul that is a present reality. So, these people, Jesus' followers in the first century, they could live in a place that exalted all these pagan gods, and yet they were new creations in Christ. They were called to live as according to who they are in Christ, the new creation. Deliverance is a, um, a present-day experience for the believer in Paul's mind. Now, it has this idea that one day you will be, we will be delivered as followers of Jesus from the totality of the present evil age. When God comes to judge and he comes to renew all that which is broken, but before that happens, it's a present reality to be experienced. In other words, our thoughts, our speech, our entertainment, family dynamics, relationships and community, Chapter 3 is going to talk about Jew and Gentile, slave, free, male, female. All these things are brought under God's authority, not the authority of the time and culture in which they live. It's kind of like what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, where he says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this age. Don't be conformed to this, because if you're conformed to this, you're going to go down a whole bunch of nonsense and you're going to dishonor God. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this age, but he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can be able to test and to approve what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is. The principle is this. The gospel does not just affect the world to come. It does. There is a hope of the resurrection. There's a hope of all things being made new, Revelation 21. The gospel, though, is not just about that. It's a matter for today. The gospel's not just fire insurance for Paul that you cash in just to be, be sure that, oh, hey, I'll have this just in case. For Paul, it's a life-transforming truth. When we, when we were talking about the kingdom of God a couple, um, se- several weeks back, um, we talked about this. The kingdom of God is the active rule of God in anyone who repents of their sin and trusts Jesus. For Paul... The gospel is something that calls someone to actively dwell with God and to walk with Him each day as His disciple. And th- that's not like a, um, now you have to go and obey all these rules. That is a, look at what I've delivered you from. You were lost. You, you weren't just like, um, you know, kind of lost. You were dead lost in your sins. And I've delivered you. I've de- delivered you to, to serve and to worship God in a different way. Now, Jesus, er, Paul says in verses 6 through 10, he a couple times has this phrase: uh, if, even if we, for example, um, well, verse 6, I'm amazed that, you're, that you are so quickly turning from Him who called you by the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Now, there is not another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah. And he's going to address that and we're going to talk about that more in the weeks to come. Um, but even if we should... Uh, if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse beyond him. And he says this again, and what he's saying is this, he says, if I tell you something that is not true with what I told you before, the gospel that Jesus died and he rose again for your sins, if I tell you something beyond that can bring you life with God, he says, let a curse be upon him. In fact, even if an angel says that, he says, a curse be upon them. What is this foundational teaching of the gospel? There, there's a couple of passages that summarize this well. One of them is 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I'm just going to briefly give this to you. In 1 Corinthians 15, um, there, uh, there is used, um, not used, Paul lays out, um, the simple truth of the gospel. This gospel that Paul mentions numerous times in Galatians, he says this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it, and you have taken your stand on it. All right. So the gospel is something that can be received, and something that you don't just like, take it, you, you, you take your stand. You plant down feet because you're trusting in this news. You've received it. You've taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. And so this is not just mere like, yeah, I, that's intellectually compatible. Th- this is, nah, this is, this is not only true, but I'm banking my life on this. Th- this is an all-in mentality for Paul. And he says this in verse 3 of First Corinthians 15. For I passed on to you As most important, what I also received. That phrase, most important, your translation might say uh, of first importance. It's the Greek word for first. This is the number one thing for Paul. And what is this? Here's the message he received, the second part of verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So he's taking a fact that he could go and he could say, yeah, look in God's word. Look at what has happened in the recent years. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It, it's it's tied not just to an idea. It's tied to the forethought and the planning and the purposes of God that God um, from long time ago had in mind to redeem humanity. It's, it, it's this idea in... Um, In the walk to Emmaus that we talked about last week, um, when when he talks about that Christ died according to the Scriptures, it's those passages that they're talking about on the walk to Emmaus. Paul's saying, hey, or Jesus is saying, hey, remember this. Here's how I fulfill this. Here's how I fulfill this. Here is what Scripture says about who I am. But Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to five hundred brothers at one time. In other words, this is not just fact, this is not just prophesied fact, this is verified by witnesses. He could write this to the Galatians and he could say, hey, if you want to go talk to someone who talked to the Lord Jesus— there's over 500 of him that he appeared to. You can go talk to him, and some of them are still alive. Most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. He's saying, you want to you bank this down? Go talk to him. You can be certain for sure that this is what happened. And he, he ties this gospel that he talks about in Galatians is tied in with this gospel proclamation in 1 Corinthians 15. And no one is to change the message. This message is not to become more culturally relevant. In other words, more uh, appealing to the ear. The message is what it is. It's the message. It's the message that Jesus can save you from your sins because he died and rose again to pay for your sins. You can't water that down, Paul says. It's not something that can be changed to be culturally relevant or to to not hopefully uh, offend someone or to embrace all things equally. In a postmodern culture, um, the question is, is, what is truth? You have your truth, I have my truth. Paul would have said, No, that there is a truth. Here's what the truth is, and he'd share the gospel with them. And, and that wouldn't be something that would be compromised in any way, shape, or form because scripture does not leave room for fuzzy truth about the gospel because the stakes are simply too high. People's eternal destinies are at stake, not just for the world to come which is true but for today meaning in life is found today through the gospel he says a curse be upon them and this is this is the word that's used in joshua chapter 6 to describe destruction uh, upon someone who changes the gospel Uh, and this is someone who would deliberately lead people away from the truth of the gospel And the curse is simply that by changing the message away from Jesus' death and resurrection, by adding things to it, by trying to explain it a different way other than what God had done, um, what it becomes is a false gospel. And the inevitable result is destruction. Because it's a belief in something that is not true. It's a belief in something that God never set forth. Last slide. Paul meets Jesus on a Roman road to Damascus. I don't know if it was at this particular spot, but here's the Roman road to Damascus. Paul grounds all of these things in how Jesus revealed himself to him. Paul has a deep heart for his hearers to have a relationship with the Father through the death and the resurrection of the Son. Paul has experienced what it means to be someone who, who zealously persecutes God, and after having this amazing revelation from the Lord, he recognizes, wait, I thought I was doing something good for God. I, I, I thought I was making people follow the traditions of my fathers. But what God reveals to him is, no, you're persecuting me. That's not to speak ill of some of the traditions of the fathers, but that is to say, without a relationship with Jesus by faith, you can't, you can add a whole bunch of things to that, but it will leave you with nothing. Because Jesus, plus anything, does not result in spiritual life. It does not result in relationship with God. There, there are some people uh, who walk today and they think, well, I believe in Jesus, and if I just do enough good things, I can be made right with God. No, it's, it's, it's way more complicated than what Jesus intended, There's only one way to a relationship with the Father, and that is by trusting in Jesus' work, his death and his resurrection on the cross to pay for your sins. Now, the life after that is, God, how do I walk in relationship with you? Which Paul's also gonna address in Galatians, but we'll talk about that another day. So, a couple of applications as we close. The first one is this. Have you experienced God's rescue? Have you experienced God's rescue in your life? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay for your sin? And that you're trusting in Him and in Him alone to be made right before God. If you're trusting in anything but Jesus' work in your life by dying and rising again to pay for your sin, that is trusting in not the gospel. Number two, how are you living in this present evil age? We have a whole bunch of pagan worship around us. You you could easily take that photo of Augustus' temple in Pisidian Antioch and fill it with all number of stuff from today's culture. What are the things that we uphold and we uplift and we seek to make more important than what is of first importance in our life? Christ. What we find is that um, sometimes we can become very judgmental about a culture, whether it's this culture, whether it's another culture. I was listening to a podcast recently and the the host of the podcast was talking about a recent current event um, that that demonstrated just a, a lostness. And he said, you know, I'm not mad because he said something I disagree with. He said I'm broken because it demonstrates that this individual is far from God. And that struck me because I think sometimes we, we think of this adversarial nature in this present age. God calls us as people of God to be separate. But when we see brokenness and sin around us, I think the proper response should be a brokenness for the people who are walking in a non functioning relationship with God. Because as followers of Jesus, We have peace, we have hope, we have joy, we have the power of the Spirit. And these are things that people who do not walk with God and have a relationship with God do not experience. And our approach should not be to primarily be how do we protect our turf, but how do we share Christ with them so they can experience the richness of walking with God by faith. Last comment, what is of first importance in your life? In other words, are there areas in your life where you have watered down the gospel in order to fit into the culture around you? Paul's writing to believers, but they're believers who are struggling with, oh, maybe we should do this and this and this in order to, where have we watered down the gospel in our life? so that we could better fit in. God wants us to walk with him, and that's what he calls us into today. That is my prayer for us. And would you pray with me? God, in this day, in this day and age, we are are surrounded by a culture that pursues all sorts of things. And yet, God, you've called us to have minds that are renewed by your word and by your spirit. And God, even as the heart of Jesus was broken for the people around him who were far from him in relationship, God, would you break our hearts for people in our life and people in our school and people at our work and people in our family who do not have the hope of Jesus in their life. Lord, there's a lot that we could argue about in this day and age, and yet there's something so much more important. There's Jesus who died and rose again to redeem us and to rescue us from this peril of sin that we were stuck in. And yet, God, by doing that, you have have redeemed us, not just in order to save us, but to give us a new kind of life a life that is directed and in, in filled by your Spirit, a, a life, God, where we can say, Abba, we can come to you with just incredible personal um, conversation because of our relationship with you through Jesus. God, may our lives reflect the glory of God in our world this week as we seek to be your disciples and to make disciples who make disciples. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message, or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org, or call us at 616-772-4377.